Well, good morning, church. Happy Father's Day. I'm so glad you're able to be here with us on this Father's Day. Uh, today is a non-Father's Day sermon uh, because, as I mentioned last week, we're going through three chapters today. And some of you didn't believe me. Some of you said, Rick, are you, are you serious? I've got plans today. Uh, Dad's coming over. Uh, I got that. So um, I get it. We're going to go through this book. I ask you to read Romans 9 through 11 this week. I'm not going to ask how many people did their homework. But I am going to say that if you have not done that, you want to do it this week to make sure you catch everything that um, we don't specifically go over today. If you're a part of a small group this week, your discussion questions are based on this topic, so you'll go in a little bit more in depth into that. So I would ask you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapters 9 through 11 and looking at different highlights because our look today or our story today is Israel, the example of God's faithfulness to us. And while you're trying to find or you're looking to find Romans chapter 9, I do want to make one quick announcement. We have one of our missionary families uh, who's been in town with us and they're going to be here for a year, the Wodomis. The Wodomis have a need. They need a vehicle to get from place to place, okay? They're looking for a vehicle that runs, right, Kofi? Good. Has most of the wheels, all right? Looking for quality here. If you have something like that, if you have just something laying around, if you're like that and you have one, come see us afterwards. Come see the Wodomis. We need something to give, be able to give them so they can make their um, transportation uh, around the area. They're not leaving until when, Kofi? When are you going to be needing it specifically? When will you be needing it specifically? Okay. This month or next month? Next month. Okay, so you got time to save up some car payments and get them a new car. Teslas. Hey, dream big, right? Let's see what God does. Okay. All right, you got Romans chapter 9 open as we look through this. Now, Romans chapter 9 verses, I'm sorry, chapters 9 through 11, it's all about Israel in this passage. It really is. We could go through each chapter, by, uh, each chapter verse by verse, but we would, in four weeks, go through this. We would miss the real big message. Now, in the Old Testament, God promised that the nation of Israel will be blessed with an eternal kingdom ruled by their eternal king, the Messiah. He made that promise to them. And in these next three chapters, Paul is crafting one big argument meant to answer a possible question that he may have heard said in his day. Now, Paul's goal in these chapters is to affirm that his teaching on our justification, our being declared righteous, and assurance of these Roman, predominantly Gentile believers, that truth does not negate God's promises to Israel. That's the point of these passages. And to do this, Paul is crafting this argument, that God is faithful. So I'm giving away the spoiler, all right? God is faithful, therefore he can be trusted to keep his promises to Israel alongside of providing salvation to the Gentiles. And he heavily relies on the idea of God's mercy throughout chapters 9 through 11. He uses a neat word for mercy, aleo, which means to show mercy, to have compassion. Now, what's really interesting about this, and I have to nerd out just for a moment on this Father's Day, is that when Paul uses this passage, he's quoting, or he uses that verb, aleo, that verb, aleo he's quoting from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Now, 
Here's why this is nerdy, all right? The Old Testament was written in what language? Hebrew, New Testament, and Greek. By the time Paul comes around in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they have created a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And I'm going to give five bonus points to whoever can name it. Septuagint. Where's my, oh man, I got my Bible study guys over here. There's my endeavors over here. All right. Okay. The Septuagint, a fun word. It's abbreviated by LXX, which is Roman numerals. Did I I lose you already? Are you ready to go home now after that? Awesome. So here we go. When he quotes it, he quotes this phrase. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now, the Hebrew, this is what's neat. That verse in the original Hebrew, Exodus 33, 19, the word for mercy is actually the word we looked at last week, hesed. Do you might remember what hesed means? Steadfast, loyal, faithful love. Do you see the parallel here? You see, in the Old Testament, whenever Israel would break the covenant and suffer wrath and judgment, God would remind the people that his hesed, his loyal love, holds a promise of future restoration. Now, I see a lot of people writing a lot of stuff down, and it's going to be a lot. We haven't even started yet. This is all intro. We're sending you all these notes tomorrow. I'd like for you to just relax and enjoy this ride through Romans 9 through 11. Now, if you're like, I need to write to pay attention, please do so, all right? In Isaiah 54, 7 through 8, the prophet says, For a brief moment, God says, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you, talking to Israel. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You see, when they sin, God brings them back. He promises with his loyal love. We see it again in Jeremiah 3.12. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Thus, God's mercy and his faithfulness are so intertwined that one cannot discuss one without the other. That's important to know before we go forward. These are not two separate parts of God's character. They're together. They're intertwined. His mercy and his faithfulness go hand in hand. And Romans 9 through 11 serves as one big argument meant to answer a possible question that Paul may have frequently heard. And here's the question. If Israel has rejected the Messiah... Does that suggest that God's promises to Israel have been revoked? Now, we would all in here go, no. However, there were some in Paul's day, and there are some even now who make this claim. And what we're going to do today is get into that. Because if this is true, this calls into question the faithfulness of God. And we cannot call into question the faithfulness of God. Christian friends, predominantly Gentile Christians, if we call into question God's faithfulness here, we're in a lot of trouble. So we're going to dig in deep and talk about the character of God in this book together. Okay? Paul's argument is that God's steadfast love for Israel has not changed despite their current, at that time of Paul, rejection of their Messiah and their disobedience to the gospel. Paul's going to argue that God's faithfulness cannot be nullified or negated by human rejection or failure. And Paul's thesis, sorry, I'm an English teacher. His one simple argument is found in verse 6. Take a look at it. 
where he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, that's a great passage. It's a great memory verse. But in this passage, he's not talking specifically about the whole Bible. He's talking about the promises that God made to Israel that he listed in previous verses. What were those promises? Look at verse 4. To them belong, the Israelites, the Jewish people, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He says, and that word that God gave them has not failed. To say that God has rejected Israel is to say that his promises cannot come true. Paul's argument in 9 through 11 is that God has not failed to keep his promises to Israel. Paul uses a, a literary device. It's known as a, a chiasm to convey this argument. And for, for lack of a better term, a chiasm is a, is a literary device where one, there's a sequence of ideas presented where they go in reverse order. They start and then go in reverse order. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Here's one. See if you can finish this for me. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. You just did a chiasm. You see? You just reversed it. Now, is that true? I don't know. I don't know. I know a lot of people give up when the going gets tough. And does that mean the tough get going? They say leave? I don't understand that. There's a lot, of, a lot of words there. All right? But what Paul is using here is a chiasm. A chiasm. And in this case, he uses it to flesh out this idea, and I'm going to steal his chiasm, and that's going to be our outline today. All right? And here we go. We're going to get started. In the first part of this argument, Paul states that God has not canceled his promises to Israel. And that's in chapter 9, verses 6 through 29. He begins by showing that God has been cons consistent in his dealings with Israel from the very beginning of their nation to their current day, to Paul's day. He explains that just because a person is a descendant of Abraham, the great ancestor of the nation of Israel, that does not grant them a place in God's people. Look at verses 6 through 7. Paul writes, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. And he then uses two instances, or several instances, I should say, from Israel's history to illustrate this point. He uses it, um, he uses Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael in verses 7 through 9. And then he uses J Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, in 9, 10 through 13, to show that just because a person is born into this family, that doesn't mean that they're a part, a part of God's people. And then Paul anticipates a possible objection that his readers may have had to this. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, if God were to bless some people in Israel's history apart from their merits or actions, that would make God unjust or unfair if he failed to do the same with others. But Paul is adamant here, and he's, he's insisting that God is free to do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants. And then he gives some historical examples. If you look through chapter 9, in verse 17, he talks about Pharaoh, hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he would not set the people free. And then in chapter 9, verse 20, he gives probably what is one of the most confusing parts of this passage, the potter and the clay. Because the point he's trying to make is, who decides what to make out of the clay? The potter or the clay? And it's a rhetorical question. It's whatever the potter wants. 
Paul is trying to say here that God can do this. He can choose Jacob over Esau. He can choose Isaac over Ishmael. He has the right to do that. And then Paul explains from the prophets Hosea and, and, and Isaiah how it is the response of the individual. And here's the key. It is the response of the individual, regardless of their nationality, Jew or Gentile, to God's revelation of himself that defines that person's stance in the sight of God. That's what Paul's trying to get to. Because if we, if we remember in our, in our reading of the Gospels, there were people, there were Pharisees who were saying, we are children of Abraham. We are guaranteed promises no matter how we act. And Jesus says, you got it all wrong. You've heard it said, do this, but I'm telling you this. And then Jesus says a phrase that got him on the list to be close to being executed was, God could raise up children out of Abraham from stones that need you. You see, we see this here in this passage. In verses 25 through 26, Gentiles who obey God's revelation are brought into his people. Those who are of Israel obey God's revelation, remain his people in 27 through 29. Paul then explains what's going on. So he's made, a, he's made his first argument. His first point is God has not rejected his people. And now he's going to go into what's happening right now. He explains that at this time of his time, he st the state of the nation of Israel in relation to the response of God's revelation, he's saying that currently Israel has not obeyed the gospel. And that takes us from chapter 930 through 1021, that currently Israel has not embraced or obeyed the gospel. And he introduces it with a question of what shall we say then? Talking about how, how has Israel failed to attain the righteousness of God? And he gives us his answer in verse 30. Look at verses 30 through 32. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? Now, when he uses the word pursue, I, know I don't want to get lost in the weeds here. When he uses the word pursue, he's talking about you're working towards it. Because the Jewish mindset was, these Gentiles aren't doing anything. They don't have the law. They're not obeying the law. They don't care. But they're not pursuing righteousness. So Paul says, the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness as by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith as if it were based on works. And then Paul uses Isaiah 28, 16 and Psalm 118:22 to present the revelation of God, which Israel has failed to receive. That revelation that they failed to receive is Christ. He then describes the message of the gospel as a stumbling block, a rock of offense to the people of Israel. Meaning that there's something about the gospel that Paul preaches, that his Jewish brothers and sisters cannot seem to get past in order to be saved. He's like, there's something about it. They just, they're stumbling over this. They just can't get past it. Now, we're going to get into this here in just a moment. Before we do, I want to give you a glimpse of Paul's heart in this passage. He gives us a glimpse of his heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters. And I want to wonder, I wonder if we felt the same way about people who don't know the Lord. Look what he says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. My heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. 
Now, this is not something new Paul said. In the first part of chapter 9, he says something like this. He actually says that if he, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, he says that if it was possible, he would willingly give up his own salvation in order for his Jewish brothers and sisters to be saved. He says it. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is willing to be cut apart from Christ, accursed. Literally suffer in hell so that they could be saved. I don't know a love like that. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine saying I would willingly forfeit my eternal salvation in order that this person come to know Christ. But I'm, I wonder, I wonder if I did, I wonder if we did, we had that kind of desire, what our lives would look like. Can I, say, can I make some suggestions? I doubt we'd be focused on things that don't matter. I doubt that I would spend my time wanting what I want rather than what that person needs. I doubt I would be fearful of making sure I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I've had that before. I have people coming up to me, Rick, I'd love to share the gospel, but I'm really afraid to say the wrong thing. Listen, let me tell you something. If that's you, never in the history of humanity has this ever happened. You've never shared, started sharing the gospel with someone, and then when you walk away, they became a Muslim. That's not how it happens. Don't worry. I don't know what happened, Rick. Started going through the gospels, Romans Road. Next thing you know, Muslim. I don't know what happened. What happened? It's not going to happen. Listen, I could tell you stories of the worst gospel presentations I've given. Remember Pastor Kivitz at the beach story? I can't forget that one. You need to text him and find out what that is if you don't know it. It's a great one. We've had bad ones. Listen, the gospel being proclaimed is the important thing. And we have to love people enough to do that. But here, Paul explains that part of the stumbling block in the way of Israel embracing Christ as their Messiah is their misdirected zeal for seeking to be made right with God through their own religious activity. It's a misdirected zeal. Have you ever gone in the wrong direction? Maybe you stopped following your GPS because you knew the right way. Have you ever gone really fast in the wrong direction? When my wife and I first got married, we would travel back and forth to Ohio, and I still wasn't sure how to get exactly where I was going because I was a North Carolina kid, and I believe this is God's country, and I want to stay there. So I remember one time we were going up to Ohio to visit. We didn't have kids at that time. She fell asleep. It was her mistake. She fell asleep, and I'm like, I got this. She wakes up. She's like, this doesn't look familiar, and I'm seeing signs for Tennessee. <laughs> she's been gone for an hour. Like she's been unconscious, and I'm driving. In the wrong direction, 70 miles per hour, because that was the speed limit, in the wrong direction for an hour. And she's like, you're going to need to turn around. I'm like, well, you think? But that's me. Listen, I knew, I thought, I thought I was going the right way. You ever been there? That's what Paul is saying about these guys. They're going in the wrong direction. They think they know what they're doing. It's a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. It's misdirected. I wonder what it would be like if we saw people that way. If we saw people who were unsaved that way, instead of seeing them as bad guys or the enemies. What if we saw them as zealous but misguided, misdirected? Well, if we did, I wonder if we would be like my wife and wake up and say, hey, you're going the wrong way. Let me help you. 
Now, he states in verse 4, what was, uh, verses 3 through 4, what was going on. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, there's a lot going on in that verse, but when he uses the word God's righteousness, he's not talking about the character of God. He's talking about the righteousness that God requires to be right with him. And he's saying here in this passage that these Jewish people are pursuing a righteousness from the law and not the righteousness that God requires. This is the righteousness that believers in Christ are declared to be at the moment we place our faith in Christ. You see, Paul's concern is that the Jewish pursuit of righteousness by keeping the law of Moses was keeping them from being declared righteous by faith. This righteousness of God is further described in chapter 10, verse 1 through 21 as a righteousness for all who believe. Paul shares with his audience that this righteousness is a gift to be received by confession of faith in the deity of Jesus and his resurrection. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. Many of you can quote it. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, you're like, I love this passage. But I got to go nerd again and show you how the people at the time would have received this. Because when Paul says Jesus is Lord, he uses a Greek word, kurios, which means master. And Paul uses it as a title for Jesus, and we don't have a problem with that today. But in the Septuagint again, the word kurios, when they write it from Hebrew to Greek, they take the Hebrew words Adon or Adonai or Yahweh, the name of God, and they write in kurios. You're like, well, what's the big deal about that? What's the point? Listen, I don't want you to miss the point here. What Paul is saying when he says Jesus is Lord, he says, you've got to confess Jesus is God. You see, that would have been the stumbling block. Jesus is, he's not saying that Jesus is a Lord. He is the Lord. And he's saying Jesus is Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. That's why this gospel is a stumbling block to them. Because to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is Yahweh, and that would have been blasphemy to Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters. Bible teacher A.T. Robertson puts it this way. He says, no Jew could do this who had not truly trusted Christ. For kurios in the LXX, the Septuagint, is used of God. Do you see why this is a stumbling block for them? This would have been blasphemous for them. And Paul then explains that though many of his Jewish brothers and sisters have placed that trust in Christ the Messiah, the nation as a whole has yet to do so. So thus, from a perspective of human responsibility, Israel has not obeyed the gospel. But Paul is quick to finish his argument in this chiasm by explaining in the next chapter, 11, 1 through 32, that God has not rejected Israel. Here in this final part of the argument, Paul returns to the perspective of God he used in chapter 9 to answer the question, has God rejected his people? And when he responds to it, he uses that phrase we found earlier, if you weren't with us, from Romans chapter 6, 1. He had that strong statement has God rejected his people? And we talked about how the Phillips translations translates it as, what a ghastly thought. What a ghastly thought. That God would reject his people. 
Paul is adamant that the fact that salvation has been offered to the Gentiles has not displaced Israel as God's dearly loved people. He's got a plan for them. And he then describes Israel's rejection in two ways. He says, first, it's a partial rejection. In verses 1 through 10, he says, he used himself as an example that not all Israel has rejected their promised Messiah. He says, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Israel. I'm of, the tri- I mean, I'm of Israel. I'm a tribe of Benjamin. I'm a believer. And then he refers to the story of Elijah in Israel's history to show that God has always has a remnant who places their trust in him, even when the rest of the nation is bowing down to Baal. Paul then explains that the Jewish nation of his day has refused salvation because they sought for it by works. He says, the elect were given mercy, but the majority were hardened in unbelief. And then he gives Old Testament citations to show that what Paul is teaching is not in violation or inconsistent with the Old Testament. This is what God had always said. But then further, Paul explains that his, their rejection is temporary in 11 through 27. The wording Paul uses in verse 11 is very, very important. He says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? What Paul is stating is that Israel has just experienced a, they haven't experienced a permanent fall, just a stumbling, meaning their present state at the time of Paul's writing is not permanent or irreversible. He then declares that this hardened phase of Israel's history with God has allowed the Gentiles access to salvation. Furthermore, he declares that somehow this extending of mercy and grace to the Gentile nations who have historically been without God's revelation will draw the nation of Israel back to him. But Paul's also clear to remind us, the Gentiles who have received such a blessing, to avoid arrogance. Now, it was possible that during Paul's day, so many Gentiles had come to Christ and make up so large a part of the church that they were beginning to look down on their Jewish brothers and sisters. And can I say, if you study church history, you see this happened. It happened. It's a spot and a stain on the history of the Christian church with how we treated the people of Israel. And it's, Paul uses an illustration of a wild olive branch being grafted into a cultivated tree. By the way, if you know anything about uh, grafting, you know that doesn't go. It's not supposed to go that way. To show that Gentile believers in Rome, that they should not assume some kind of superiority over the Jewish roots of their faith. Paul says, matter of fact, you should honor these Jewish roots as they are the means by which God has promised salvation for all people. He also states that God is more than able to restore the Jewish people to their place of faith. And he makes the promise that it's going to happen. Paul then makes an emphatic statement of God's promises to Israel that they're permanent and eternal in 1129 where he says, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Paul's adamant that the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament are unchangeable because they're founded on the very character of God. Now, It's been a lot of information right now. Let me put it this way. Let's say that I made a promise to my daughter, Ella, that I would take her out for her favorite dessert on Saturday for no other reason than a father-daughter hangout time. Where are we going, Ella? What's your favorite dessert? Not ice cream. Lactose intolerance. Woohoo! By the way, when you invite the cliners, like, let's go get ice cream. Thanks. Two of us can have it. All right? So we're not getting ice cream, but let's say I'm making her that promise. But let's say that you failed your math test, okay, which you don't, 
But let's say she does. So I took that promise from her and fulfilled it with Owen. Took him out for his favorite dessert. Let me ask you a question. Would either one of my children be able to trust me again? No. I got a kid answer for that. Good one. Thank you. I would never. Because I told Ella, no reason at all, just father-daughter hang out. But then she failed her math test, so I took it away. She can't trust me because I took back what I promised. Owen can't trust me because I didn't even make that promise with him. He might start wondering, well, when are you going to break promises you make with me? Do you see what happens? That's the idea here Paul is trying to share with us about Israel and the Gentiles. If God were to break his promises with Israel, Gentiles could not trust God's promises because he would be capricious and, and changing and fickle. For God to remove his promises to Israel is somehow give them to the Gentiles is to call into question God's very character. But then Paul concludes his argument with this declaration of worship in which he marvels at the wisdom and greatness of God in his plan. He expresses wonder at God's wisdom and knowledge. He magnifies the sovereignty of God in Israel's history and in his plan to bring all nations into his coming kingdom. Look what he says. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul just gets so caught up in what God has done and how everything is wrapped up. Israel's history is all wrapped up in this. He, is, he just can't help but praise God. Kenneth Barker says it this way. The doxology that ends this section of Romans is the natural outpouring of Paul's praise to God, whose wisdom and knowledge about his great, brought about by his great plan for the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. He just can't get enough of this. Now, as we close our look at these three chapters, you're like, okay, well, we talked a lot about Israel, but how does this apply to me? Well, if you've sat in any of my classes or listened to any sermons I've ever preached, you know there are two big questions we have to ask when looking at a passage. The first question is, what does this passage teach us about God? Because the Bible is God's diary. It's his journal. He's revealing himself to us. So what do we learn about God from this passage? Number one, we learn that God's mercy on his creation is what moves him to provide salvation for all people. It's not their works. It's not their goodness. It's his mercy, his hesed, his loyal love. Number two, God is faithful. Therefore, he can be trusted to keep his promises. And then finally, God is sovereign, working all things toward his plan to glorify himself and bring about the good of all creation. Now, you're like, okay, that's it, right? No. Our next question. Our next question is, now, what do I do here? This knowledge I just learned about God, how does that apply to me? What do I need to do here? What do I need to learn from God here? I've learned that he's, he's merciful, he's faithful, and he's sovereign. So how do these things that we just learned about God apply to us? And here it is. It's just one thing. If God is faithful to keep his promises to Israel, he can be trusted to keep his promises to us. You see what happens? If, we, if, if, God, can't keep, if God does not keep his promises to Israel, we can't trust him. 
So you might be asking, all right, Rick, well, what are those promises? Okay, I've got a few. This is not meant to be exhaustive, but I've, I've got a few. I'm going to put them all on the screen at one time. I'm going to walk through them. But if you want to take a picture of it, do that. But I would ask you, when I put these on the screen, these are things we need to focus on day in and day out. Maybe write these down, put on your mirror when you get ready in the morning as you're brushing teeth. Remember these promises? Teach these to yourself constantly. Here they are. What are these promises? Number one, that he will save all who call upon the name of Jesus. If you're here today and you're like, I don't know about this Jesus. I don't think he can be trusted. He can be trusted. He's promised to save you if you call upon his name. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Acts 2, 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise. Number two, that our salvation is secure in him. In John 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Number three, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, our sustainer. Galatians 3.14 says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. James 1.5 promises he will provide wisdom if we ask for it. I have prayed that prayer more times in the last few, last year than I ever had. Where he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Another promise that he will provide endurance through temptation. He's not removing it. He's promising endurance through it. First Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Probably my favorite one, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He says, behold, I'm with you always, the Greek word there, all the days, good and bad days, to the end of the age. He's promised that he will finish the good work in us that he began. Philippians 1, 6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And then finally, I left this one for last, that he will one day return. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Beloved, we have been given amazing promises by our great and faithful God. And we can trust these promises because he's faithful. Because he who can be trusted to keep his promises to Israel can be trusted to keep his promises to us believers as well. But I want to talk a little bit about promise number one. That he will call on, that he will save those who call upon his name. Friends, I, I don't know why you're here today. You may be visiting with the family because it's Father's Day. But I, can I tell you, welcome to the divine appointment you didn't know about. Because the gospel says clearly that if you trust to be true, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God. And that he did what the Bible says he did, that he died for your sins, was buried and rose again. You have eternal life. And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. It's not about religious activity. It's not about being at church on this day. It's not about coming to church on Christmas and Easter and other holidays. It's not about doing activities. It's not about how many mission trips you've gone on or how much activity you've done or how many 
verses you've memorized or any of that, how, many, how active you are in church has nothing to do with it. It's all about, have you called upon the name of the Lord for salvation? Friend, if that's you here today, if you haven't done that, please come see me after this service. If you don't want to come see me, I'm a little intimidating. There's people beside you who would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. Christian friend, I want to focus for you on the one from Matthew 28, 20. God has promised that he will not abandon you. You may feel like those times. We've gone through Romans 8, where we have talked about the sufferings of this present evil age. Friend, God has promised to be with you this whole time, all the days. May these promises that we've seen today encourage our hearts only because the one who promised them is faithful. Will you pray with me? Father, our great God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for proving yourself faithful in the history of your people Israel, that you have not rejected them, and that someday you will restore them, and you will bring about that kingdom that you promised. And Father, because you can be trusted and you kept your promises to Israel, we can trust you to keep your promises to us. Father, thank you for the great promises we have, that we are saved only through your son, Jesus, that we have been given your Holy Spirit, that we will never be left alone, that you're with us all the days, that you give us wisdom when we lack it, you promise to, that you will complete the good work that you've started in us at the moment of our salvation. You promise to complete that when your son returns. And Father, you promise that your son will return to set all things right. Father, may those promises and the truths of them just captivate our hearts, knowing how loved we are by our great God. And we pray this in your son's great name, which is above every name. Amen.